You know, I, I love those words. I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. When you think about that, is that what people around you are saying? I've always wanted to have a neighbor like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. Because when we talk about this question, won't you be my neighbor, it's not so much us asking people, hey, be more neighborly to us. Now, this is flipping the table around and saying, what if people would actually say to us, hey, I see something in you that I love, something in you that I, that I appreciate. Won't you, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you take time to care for me? So this question isn't so much for us, feeling like, gee, people need to be more neighborly to us Christians. No, we're missing it. The point is we need to be more neighborly. So people would say, hey, won't you be my neighbor? And so we talked last week about when Jesus was asked to reduce everything of the Old Testament to a great command, he said what? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the law and the prophets was boiled down to those points. Love God and love your neighbor. And we talked about the fact that every day we should be asking ourselves this question, what am I doing today that shows my love for God more than yesterday? What am I doing to grow in that love for God more than I was yesterday? And what am I doing today that shows my neighbor I love them more than I was doing yesterday? Because the truth is, none of us really think about those kinds of things on a daily basis. We just kind of let life happen and don't think about intentionally being what God wants us to be, how he wants us to love not only him, but how he wants us to love our neighbor. And we talked about how when we love God, that love should make us want to move closer to those around us. That love always should be that kind of sending and moving love that moves us closer to people. And isn't that what God did? He loved us. In fact, we just heard it quoted from John three sixteen. God loved us, and so he gave. He moved into the neighborhood, so to speak. That's what love does. In fact, when Paul was summarizing this in Galatians chapter 5, this will be on the screens for you, but in Galatians 5.13, Paul also touches on this truth. Listen to what he says. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, rather to serve one another humbly in love. See, there's a part of all of us, isn't it true, that wants to indulge ourselves. In fact, in the great America, isn't that what we're told to do? Indulge ourselves, live for ourselves. It's all about you. And Paul says, friends, it's not the way it's supposed to be. But rather, what's it say? Serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. And notice what he says love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we continue this series on Won't You Be My Neighbor? We, we, we want to take a look this morning in particular at a time in Scripture when Jesus talks about what it means to be a neighbor. I think that if, if any of us as Christ followers would want to hear what Jesus has to say about neighborhood, it should be all of us, right? We want to know your perspective, Jesus, on what it means to be a neighbor. Because this isn't just a new thing. This is something that's happened ever since the beginning of our world when we were given people to live with. And he introduced for us in his conversation about neighbors, an unexpected neighbor. Let's look at it. I want you to go to your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have your Bibles, please use the Bibles in front of you, uh, in the seat in front of you. Those are there for you to use. Or if you have a smart device that has the Bible app, we encourage you to use that. Uh, in fact, you can get on, if you, if you can, get on to our guest Wi-Fi that we have here for you, and uh, you can access the Bible app through that. And if you go to events, we're there, and our notes are the, embedded there for you. Luke chapter 10, 
verse 25, we see an encounter in this passage between Jesus and an expert in the law. So you might just call him a lawyer, all right? But his focus wasn't necessarily civil law. His focus was the law of the Old Testament. He committed his life to memorizing the law, to knowing the law, to interpreting the law as he assumed it should be interpreted. And so he's an expert. It's not somebody who has a little bit of a hobby in knowing what the law says. He has dedicated his life to the law. And he has a conversation with Jesus. Anybody, anybody here ever met somebody who's maybe kind of like an expert in the law? Let me, give, let me explain. It's the kind of person who just sees black and white. You ever met somebody like that? Well, it's like, geez, everything is just so with you, isn't it? You know, and that's the kind of person that Jesus is bumping into. And Jesus is trying to transform the way this man thinks. Let's look at it in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when he's asking this question of Jesus, notice he's doing it as a way to test Jesus. Because what this is implying is the expert in the law already knows the answer to his own question. He thinks he's got this thing figured out. And so he says, teacher, tell me. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life uh, is something that's spoken of often in the Old Testament. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it talks about this inheriting life everlasting. And so every Jewish person has this sense that they all can inherit this eternal life, and they have a pathway to do that. And the pathway for them has been obedience to the law and the sacrifices. So when this Jewish lawyer, he's asking this question, some things to know about him, he does believe in God. He believes that he is accountable to God. And since God exists, he wants to figure out the right way to approach God. And he thinks he's got it figured out. It's through obedience to the law. Unless we make this question he's pitching ask like uh, or sound like some kind of a, a works-based salvation, we have to understand that for the Jew, they really felt like internal life was inherited through obedience to the law and offering the proper sacrifices. They believed that if you did those things, that you would be saved. And so what we have is a, is a works-based inheritance of eternal life. Do the law, do the sacrifices, That equals eternal life. Now, you have to understand, this took place prior to Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sins, and resurrecting. So in their mindset, the law was the way to eternal life. And that's why it was so important for everybody to obey it. So he's asking Jesus a question that he assumes the answer, and you have to put it in, again, their time frame. This is how we earn life everlasting. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't directly answer the man's question. As Jesus made a habit of doing often, he responded to the man's question with a question. I think we need to get better at doing this, Christians, especially when a a person who's curious about the faith asks you a question. Sometimes it's good just to ask them a question about what do they think about God? What have they believed about God? Because it's, it's, it's very enlightening, as it was in the case of this man. And so we go on in the Scripture, and it says in verse 26, where Jesus is kind of pushing the probe a bit deeper into the man's heart, 
and into the man's motives. Look at what he says. What is written in the law, he replied, this is Jesus, and how do you read it? And so he answered, being the lawyer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer responds in a way that's very appropriate for a Jew. This is the great commandment. It could be called the law of love. Love God, love people. But how does that answer the man's original question? What was his question? How do I inherit eternal life? What it helps us understand is that what Jesus is trying to push toward here is not an action, but it is love. Loving God, being devoted deeply to God. See, at this point, again, this is pre-Jesus, pre-well, Jesus' death, pre-redemption. And so he's saying, don't miss the point. Don't get hung up in all the details of the law. The issue here is to love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything grows out of that relationship of love that we have with God. And what Jesus was desiring to do was was to correct the way that man traditionally thinks, and which is often the way we think. Because this man had transactional thinking, which means he believed that each transaction he did, each work he did, each time he obeyed the law, all that transaction would equal the life he wanted to have. And so he had this transaction thinking. If I do, 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 then God is obligated to, and it's a transaction. But what Jesus is trying to introduce is transformational thinking, not transactional thinking. Too many of us, even as as born-again believers in Jesus, tend to think transaction. I better do this. I better better read that. I better honor this. And, And while it's good to honor God, right, If we're thinking transaction, at the end of the day, we're not sure where we set with God. But rather, what Jesus is trying to introduce here is a whole new way of thinking. It's not about obeying the law. It's about loving the lawgiver. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Because if we love God with all we are, then our approach to living for him is not going to be duty, right? It's going to be devotion, Because we love him. We desire to do what honors him and, by the way, what honors those that we live with. And so he's trying to transform the way this man thinks. And so in verse 28, Jesus tells the man, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The conversation could have ended there. The man could have walked away, right? Do this and you will live. Now, on that point, I just got to make note here that, again, Jesus is not, is not uh, commending or endorsing works-based salvation, but rather he's, he's connecting the fact that a relationship with God is the way to eternal life, but that love is not just vertical. This man, I, I believe he had good intentions. Maybe he even loved God, right? But it's not just vertical. It's also horizontal. In fact, evidence of our love for God is a deep love and concern for our neighbor. This is a truth that we see primarily in the New Testament, where God continually connects our love for him with our reaction to those around us. Here's one example. John 13, when Jesus speaks to this, verse 34, he says, a new command I give you. Now notice what it says. This is a new command. A new command I give you. And what is it? Love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Is there a recurring phrase in those two verses? Yes, love one another, love one another, love one another. He repeats it, and then he gives a context for it. As I have loved you, that's how you should love one another. This is the new command. It's to love. So as I have loved you, you need to love. Now, 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John picks up this theme. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister, and this is not sibling, okay? This is, this is co-creation. It's people who are, who are around us, brothers and sisters, all right? Image of God bearers. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So there's always a connection between loving God and loving other people. And that was the transformational thinking that Jesus wanted to get into the heart of this expert, but he still didn't get it. Look at what happens in verse 29. It says, but he still wanted to justify himself. In other words, he still wanted to look good. He still wanted to look righteous. Probably because Jesus just pinned him on the carpet with what he just said. So to justify himself, to give some parameters around it, he asks, and who is my neighbor? He wants to know exactly where does his responsibility fall and are there any limits to that responsibility. His question and who is my neighbor is really an attempt to limit who one's neighbor is. In ancient culture, that, that line of demarcation between your neighbor and not neighbor usually ran across ethnic lines, much like it does even still today in our culture. Who's in Who's out? That's really one I want to know because Jewish people had a category for a non-neighbor. They had a category. There were people who were outside of it. And what he wanted was Jesus to endorse this idea that there are people who are neighbors and there are people who are non-neighbors. So give me some clarification, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus, I think it's interesting, rather than giving this lawyer a definition. He could have said, well, what does the Webster's Dictionary say? How do you read it, right? I mean, that's what he did earlier with the law, right? Because in Webster's Dictionary, a neighbor is one living or located near you, okay? He could have just said, this is a neighbor, somebody who, who lives right next to you. But rather than giving a stagnant definition for what a neighbor is, that a lawyer could be very good at drawing some lines around, right? Well, this isn't, this is. He can, he can interpret that however he wants to. Rather than doing that, Jesus gives a vivid illustration. An illustration, by the way, that you're all familiar with. You've heard this. There are hospital organizations that are titled this, right? He tells a story. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. And in the beginning of this story... Jesus not only challenges our normal view and his normal view of a neighbor, but he introduces for us an unexpected neighbor. Let's look at it. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Let's just pause there for a minute, give some explanation. Um, some of us aren't very good at geography. I never really was ever really good at geography, but just give some clarification. Jerusalem was a higher elevation 
And so anytime they said they were going down from Jerusalem, didn't mean going south necessarily. It meant literally going down. They would go up to Jerusalem, and they would go down from Jerusalem. And on his way to Jericho, by the way, Jericho was kind of north and east. So that's why it can sound kind of confusing when it says he's going down. But here's the deal. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was 17 miles. And over that 17 miles, the elevation changed 3,500 feet. So this wasn't like a little walk from Albany to Lebanon. All right, this was 17 miles over 3,500 feet. So what we can picture here is something that might look a little bit like the Badlands of America. All right, rocky, mountainous, rough-looking, rugged territory. And across the 17 miles, he would go from high elevation down to beneath sea level. But this road was dangerous, not only because of the high elevation change, the narrow paths, but because there were caves all around this area, and there were turns that were kind of blind turns. And waiting around those turns or within those caves, there were robbers who capitalized on this kind of road to waylay some people, rob them, beat them, and leave with their bounties. There were robbers who lived in this region. And so here we have the story. This man chose to go alone from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers. What we don't know about this man is who he is, what nationality he is. He just says there was a man. Now we could guess that because he was leaving Jerusalem, going to Jericho, that this man probably was a Jew. But we don't know. It's not, it, notice Jesus doesn't give any clarification on who this man is. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. I don't know if it was from here up or from here down. I'm not sure which half was dead, but he was half dead. And a priest happened. Notice the way that that Jesus tells this story. It's almost like there's a beacon of hope here. A priest just happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, a priest, as you guys would know, is somebody who would go to the temple and serve God. Now, because there were lots of priests within the priestly family, often what would happen is you'd be given an an assigned time to serve the temple, and then you may never be called upon to serve again. If you think about the story of uh, the birth of John, Zachariah was his father. He was a priest. He was serving at a specific time, and oftentimes they would never serve again because there were enough priests to go around. So he had done his priestly duty, and he was returning home from serving God in the temple, right? Talk about a a strong religious experience, and he's heading home, and he sees the man, and what does he do? He doesn't even go near. He sees the man, believes him to possibly be dead, doesn't want to risk getting close because as a priest, if he came into contact with a dead body, that would make him unclean. So he just assesses that man is dead. He probably only saw him from here up, which this half was the dead half. And he says that man looks dead. And so he doesn't even go near. In fact, according to some of the rabbinical law, which isn't in the Old Testament, but it's man's interpretation of that, in some of that rabbinical law, it said that even if your shadow passed across a dead man, it would make you unclean. 
So he doesn't want to risk it. I've had a high spiritual moment. I can't risk getting in contact with this guy. He passes the other side and he leaves. Let's continue on. So too, a Levite who happens to be of the tribe of Levi, who are people who serve also God's purposes at the temple or otherwise. A Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, this means he came close enough to actually see him, to recognize there might be some life in him still saw the man, but he, when he saw him, he took, sorry, when he saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now we come to the part of the story where the audience, especially the teacher of the law, would have, under their breath perhaps, would have just groaned. Because to a Jew, a Samaritan was an enemy. If we were to use this in common vernacular today, you could have substituted Samaritan with terrorist. You get the idea, okay? They hated Samaritans. They despised Samaritans. Why? Because Samaritans were half-breed Jewish people. In the Old Testament, when the invading army came and, and exiled Israel out of their promised land, some of the poor Israelites were left, and they intermarried with the surrounding nations, and now they were no longer pure Jewish people. They became Samaritans, and they also worshipped some pagan gods. And so they were like enemies, half-breeds. And the Jews were very proud of their Jewish heritage, very proud of the fact they were 100% Jew, and so they hated Samaritans. In fact, you might recall the story when Jesus talks to a woman who happens to be a Samaritan at the well. A lot of Jews wouldn't even walk through Samaria. Jesus didn't care. He walked right through the middle of Samaria, going on his way home, but others would walk around it. They wouldn't even step foot on Samaritan dust. They hated him. They despised him. And here, Jesus has the audacity to mention a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Now, I'm sure everybody assumed in hearing the story the same thing was going to happen. In fact, maybe the Samaritan would, would, would kick him some more. And, and try to find a way to bring more harm and, and damage to this man because he's the bad guy of the story. But notice what Jesus does. A Samaritan came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. This is the only time in this story where we see anybody taking pity. At priest, it wasn't commented he took pity. The Levite, it doesn't comment they took pity. It seemed as though their hearts were cold and they just walked right around without even feeling anything for the man who was probably their own kind, their own Jew, laying on the road. But this man takes pity. He went to him. So what does his pity look like? Here's what it looks like. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He didn't have a first aid kit attached to his donkey. So what did he do? He had to tear his own garments to bandage the man's wounds. Pouring oil and wine that he happened to have, maybe for his own benefit, but he uses now to nurse this man's wounds. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he took time, his own resources. The next day he took out two denarii, cash, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, culturally, the Samaritan is the last person the lawyer would expect to be hailed as the exemplary neighbor. But Jesus' parable turns the whole question, who is my neighbor, around. 
To the lawyer, he asks who his neighbor is in hope that maybe some people are excluded, like we sometimes do. So who's my neighbor? Because that really can't mean it's that person. So he's trying to find a loophole here. But Jesus replies, just be a neighbor. You notice the difference? It's not who is. Just be a neighbor wherever you are needed and realize that neighbors can come from some very unexpected places. You see, in Jesus' illustration revealed not only who a neighbor is, which we'll get to in a moment, but how a neighbor loves. The Good Samaritan is not trying to keep the rules He's not some kind of person who's transactional thinking. It's quite possible as a Samaritan, maybe he doesn't even love God with all that he is. He isn't even really doing his his duty. What he's doing is instinctive and natural because of who he is in the story. Here's the thing. What establishes the way that we think about neighbors is actually our identity, not theirs. It's about who you are, not about who they are. And see, friends, this is the big difference that the lawyer probably couldn't get. It's not about defining who your neighbor is. It's about, well, who are you? What is your identity? How do you view people around you? Under God's creation of you and his love for you, how do you then view the neighbors that are around you? What matters first is who we are. And the lawyer wants to know if he can be a neighbor to a select elite few, but Jesus tells him through this example of the Samaritan, let the neighbor be you. Don't be worried about who the neighbor is. You be the neighbor. He turns the whole thing around. And rather than worrying if someone else is in or out as a neighbor or not, Jesus says, be a neighbor to those who are around you who have need especially. And so by reversing this perspective, Jesus changes the question and the answer And he makes the call no longer uh, one of of assessing other people. Are you? Are you? No, you're not like me, so you must not be a neighbor. You don't believe like I believe, so you must not be a neighbor. You go to my church, so we're definitely neighbors. You know, we try to do this thing. But Jesus says, be the certain kind of person who is a neighbor to everybody. Let's look at it. Verse 36, as he brings his story to a close. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, what was the man's original question to Jesus? Who is my neighbor? Okay, that's from my point looking at you. But how does Jesus change the question? At the end of his story, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And this question is not rocket science, right? I mean, come on. A third grader, a first grader could answer this question. So the scholar says, the one who had mercy. Notice he couldn't say Samaritan. He might have tried. That's <laughs> the one who had mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say the words. But he knew what that person did the one who showed mercy. Because certainly he couldn't put Samaritan and showed mercy in the same sentence. But the one who showed mercy. And Jesus told him, then go and do likewise. He answered this man's question by saying, you go 
You be a neighbor. Don't try to guess who is and who isn't. You just be one. Go and do likewise. Be merciful in unexpected ways. But the lawyer is still choosy about who his neighbor is. He doesn't love like God loves. But what is mercy? This man uses the term mercy. What does it mean? In the Greek in which it's being used in this context, it means an attitude that arises out of a mutual relationship. In other words, that man lying dead on the ground, you don't know who he is, and the Samaritan, they have a mutual relationship. It's not because they're both Jews. One's a Samaritan. One, we don't know who he is. We're going to assume he's a Jew. It wasn't based on their nationality. It wasn't based on their race. It wasn't based on their creed. They had a mutual relationship. Mercy happens when an attitude rises in our heart because we recognize we have mutual relationships with people that are around us. We're on the same field. It's an act rather than a feeling. Notice the man took pity, but then it didn't stop there. It moved him to action. And mercy isn't just feeling, oh, I should do something. And then feeling good about the fact that you felt like you should do something. Some of us pat ourselves on the back when we walk away from something going, boy, I felt like I should have helped him. That was good. I felt that way. But didn't do anything about it. Mercy is not just a feeling. It leads to Action. In fact, it's used for acts of love that happen in Greek culture and in the Word of God. Mercy is used when acts of love take place. So this man said the man who had mercy. And to love God means to have mercy on those who have need around us. In fact, here's, here's the thing that we probably all need to capture like that expert in the law did. That neighbors are not determined by race, creed, gender, or lifestyle. Neighbors are anyone made in the image of God. So here's my question for you. Who among the humans in our world are not made in the image of God? I think we have a hard time disqualifying anybody. Right? I mean, our own declaration speaks of that. But we like to draw lines around nationality, creed, what you believe or what I believe, around gender or around current lifestyles. And we try to draw these these lines and say, they're not neighbors because that's who they are, but people who are like me are my neighbors. But neighbors are not determined by those things, but rather by the image of God within all of us. So you look at that person who is so unlike you, but here's what you have to know. They are like you because they are image bearers of their creator. They are sons and daughters of God. And you may not currently agree with their viewpoint on life, but they are an image bearer of God. And they are worthy of mercy just as you were. Ever thought about this before? That Samaritan's act of mercy was absolutely illogical. Illogical. 
It's not like Spock, illogical. It was totally illogical, right? You can't make sense of what he did. He took time. He took his resources. He inconvenienced himself. He took a risk, right? What did he do? He went near the man who was laying dead. You know that a lot of times what thieves would do on that road from Jerusalem to, to Jericho, what they would do? They would pretend to be injured. And when some unsuspecting kind person would come along, they would then capture him, beat him, rob him, and they would use a wounded person as a means to bait somebody. So this guy took a risk. It was illogical what he did, but here's what I know about God's mercy for us. Isn't it illogical? You can't make sense of God's mercy that he pours out on us. You can't make sense of it. It's illogical. And that's the kind of mercy that we're called to give. Illogical mercy. Even though they don't believe like you, live like you, smell like you, dress like you, go to church like you. They are image bearers of God, worthy of mercy. Worthy of somebody being a neighbor. The Samaritan in this story was certainly an unexpected neighbor. Unexpected. One, because he was a Samaritan, right? This is the bad guy. And two, because of what he did. Here's something I, I thought about as I was preparing for this message. I think, what if, as we think about this story, what if Christians are kind of like Samaritans in today's culture? And think about it. People who don't believe despise Christians. They have all kinds of labels for us. They hate us. We're intolerant. We're judgmental. Blah, 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 blah. We're hated. We're despised by our culture. They want us just to shut up and be quiet, right? The one kind act of this Samaritan has really transformed history. Especially since you think about it, there are medical institutions. What are they called? Samaritan Health Services. Where'd they get that from? Some trendy logo creator said, hey, I think there's a good word out there called Samaritan. Why do we have the word Samaritan? Because it was a people group. And in the story, Jesus used a Samaritan to be the good guy. It has transformed the way we even view Samaritans, because now they're good Samaritan, right? What if our kind actions change the viewpoint of people right around us of what it looks like to be a Christian. And maybe it becomes a bit more appealing. And they look toward us and say, I I may not yet understand or even want to totally believe or buy in, but there's something I cannot deny about the way that you've loved me. Won't you be my neighbor? Because that one kind act has transformed history, where now what was despised is considered good. But here's the deal. Neighborliness comes in all shapes and sizes and all varieties, but it's limited only by our failure to see, to feel, and respond. And I think every day we have a propensity to limit our neighborliness because we see needs around us every day. Some we even feel nudged to do something about but we cross the other side of the road because we're too busy or we're too Christian or we're too whatever and we can't pay attention to it. 
So here's the question. How can I be that unexpected neighbor? How can I be the Samaritan in this story who might be able through my actions to transform the way people view me as a follower of Jesus? How do I be a neighbor like Jesus talked about when he said, you go now and do likewise? I'll end with this. Be an unexpected neighbor by seeing past the labels that separate to the image of God that unites us all. We all have labels for people. We use them. I know. We use them. But what if we chose to see past that, to the image of God that unites us all, that all of us will stand accountable to God someday because we're all image bearers of God, children of God. Can we do that? Because that's what neighbors do. They see beyond the labels that separate to the image of God that unites us. Be an unexpected neighbor by opening your eyes and your heart to the needs that are right around you. Because like I've already said, some of you, every day you see needs right around you. Some of, some of you have just become blind to them. Because we say things like, well, somebody else is going to help them. Or some government organization is going to help them. And I get it, you can't help every need that comes your way because you'll be given of yourself way too often and you will deplete yourself and you'll have nothing. I get it, some of you are bleeding hearts and you're always out there mending everything. You can't be savior to everybody. But there are those times when you feel like God has specifically said you need to stop and do something right now to help that person. And some of you have hit the snooze button on that voice and said, mm, no, because that person might misunderstand my motives. That person doesn't, is not like me. But you have eyes and a heart to the needs that are right around you. Be an unexpected neighbor by taking time to truly know, to care, and to serve. You know, the truth is a lot of times we don't know, so we assume things about people. And most of the time, how many have been accused of falsely assuming ever in your lifetime, right? We all do that. So we make assumptions about people by the way they do things. And because we make these assumptions now, we certainly don't care for them. And because we don't care, we're not going to serve them. But what if we stop to really know? To know what's going on in that person's life that's causing them to be in the need that they are in? What if we took time then to care about what they're at and then to serve that? That's what being an unexpected neighbor looks like. It also means taking the risk to step out of your comfort zone. That man took great risk to stop on that dangerous road and give aid to this man. He made himself vulnerable. But we're just not willing to take that risk. We have a, a nice bubble of our daily routine and we can't step outside of it. But what if we chose to be the unexpected neighbor who stepped outside of our routine, took a risk, and helped somebody that was in need? Yeah, you might be helping somebody who really doesn't need help. That's between them and God. But you be obedient to what you got, feel God sensing to you, and don't let risk stop you. And then finally, being an unexpected neighbor by being generous with your resources. You know, Sometimes it's just being generous with your time, generous with your material, things you have. Right now, we're talking about putting your, your, your faith, putting feet to faith by just helping out those who this summer, winter, I should say, winter, need a little extra warmth, some socks and some gloves. It's in your bulletin. Read about it. 
Be a part of helping to pass those out. Putting feet to your faith. Giving of your resources to make a difference in the life of somebody else. Being generous with your feelings. That man took pity. And so he moved from that pity to action. What if we were more generous with your feelings to other people? I know it's dangerous to put your feelings out there because, you know, people might say mean things to you, especially once they know you're a Christian. But are you willing to be generous with those feelings? Because wherever we are, there are people around us who need us to be a neighbor to them. And like Jesus, to experience mercy like we've experienced from him. Here's a, here's a closing thought and I'm done. A neighbor is the one who crosses the road for a person in need. What that road might be for you is the great divide that's kept you away from certain kinds of people. But a neighbor is willing to cross the road for the one. Now, I'm not saying cross to the opposite side, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Those guys weren't neighbors. It's the one who crosses toward the one in need. But you know what it's like to have, some of you have a one-lane highway between you and others. Some it's a, it's a like six-lane interstate between you and the other person. And maybe you even at this point, you despise them. But a neighbor is one who crosses the road to help a person in need. Are you going to be that kind of person? Or the chicken who won't cross the road? to get to the other side, right? We need to be people who are willing to cross the road. So there are people around me every day. God, give me a heart for them. Because God's gonna see that no act of loving mercy goes unseen. He sees it. And more importantly, people feel it. And they see your unexpected neighborly activity and they go, why? Why would you take your time to care for me? Why would you be concerned about me? You're obviously not like me. It's because that's what Christ wants us to do, right? Because we love. We love so we cross the road to be the unexpected neighbor. Let's pray. Lord, today I... I pray for each one of us because we all have reasons why we don't do this. But I don't think we can bring justification to any of those. The lawyer tried, wanting to justify himself. He said, who's my neighbor? And then you turned the whole thing around and you said, you be the neighbor. You be the one who shows mercy to a person in need regardless of their creed their race, their gender, or their lifestyle. You love. So, Lord, that's a tall order for us because too often we live comfortably. We live in our routines and we don't think about what our neighbors are up to. But, God, I pray you'd give us action steps to do this. Maybe that means right now you're giving us a name or a face of somebody. Because to that priest and Levite, that man laying half dead was faceless. But God, I pray you'd put somebody on our heart even now. Maybe it actually is a physical neighbor of ours that we don't even know their name. We don't know what's going on in their life. 
but we can go out of our way to take the time to know and to care and to serve. So God, help us to be unexpected neighbors and show mercy as you have shown us. It's illogical, but it's worth it. So God, let us not just feel good about this message. I pray it drives us to do something. Because you told that expert in the law, you didn't say go think about it. You told them go and do likewise. Help us to go and show mercy to those around us that we know are in need. It might be that single parent with those annoying children or it might be that drug addict who seems to always be scrounging around or it might be that businessman who seems to have it all together but inwardly he's dying and his family is about to collapse. God, make us aware that we might care. In Jesus' name, amen. 